This is The Right Approach. I am J.W. Judge, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Barbara Hensky. This is a podcast for writers to learn more about the craft and business of writing as we explore a new topic every week. Our guest today is Tiffany Yates-Martin. She is a developmental editor at Fox Print Editorial. She's the author of the book Intuitive Editing, which I actually just bought like an hour ago um, because I can't get enough of, of books along those lines. Um, she also writes articles for Writer's Digest and Jane Friedman. And every Sunday morning when Jane's newsletter hits my inbox, if I see that Tiffany has authored one of the articles on there, I immediately click on it. Um, she also writes novels under the pen name Phoebe Fox. So Tiffany, welcome to The Right Approach. Thanks, JW. That was a nice introduction. <laughs> All right. So actually what brought us together today is an article that you wrote recently called create effective dialogue by asking the right questions. And as soon as I finished reading it, I immediately went to your website and sent you an email and said, please come on and talk about dialogue. Um, so mm -hmm. there's a lot of bad advice about dialogue out there. <laughs> this is not, this is not in that category, obviously. Um, but let's start with this. How do you use dialogue to make your characters feel like real people without having them speak the way people actually talk? That's a great question. Um, dialogue's funny. I think it's easy to get, you know, advice that may not be as helpful because it's something that writers can struggle with. And it doesn't seem like we should. It doesn't seem intuitive that we should because we speak all the time, right? But as you pointed out, <laughs> yeah. there is that difference between the way we speak in real life and the way that characters speak on the page, fictive dialogue. It's funny because it's sort of, I always think writing dialogue is kind of like if you've ever done public speaking or acting, or I, I came up as an actor, you think that you can do all of these things that are human, like breathe and use your body. And then you get up on a stage and you are winded for no reason. And you're like, <laughs> oh God, what do arms do? What are these things at the end of my arms? And it's the same with dialogue. You know, we think we're fine at it. And then you go down to set it on paper and suddenly every word takes on this crazy importance or you're just trying to kind of transcribe whatever it is that you think people sound like, which isn't effective right. on the page because, you know, you get off into the circumlocutions and, um, so, you know, we don't, we, if you transcribe your own dialogue, it's embarrassing. I, I actually have done that with interviews and, and Zoom calls I've done, and you just realize how much we don't say what we actually mean, which is fine because mm -hmm. characters don't all the time either. Subtext is actually really powerful. And to answer your question, that's one way that you can think about it is in fiction, very often people are not actually saying what they mean, and we're not simply speaking to convey information, you know, pass the salt, I'm going to be late on my way home. It it multitasks in story. Dialogue may advance the plot. It may reveal character or further them along their arc. It may um, raise the stakes, create relationships, reveal a character's state of mind. It could be world building. It could be, um, it could say something about the setting or a character's backstory. It's a great way to bring in backstory. So I think sort of the, it's a big question you asked 
and we should probably break it down piece by piece, but just to give a big blanket answer, I think the answer is to approach it as one of the most powerful tools you can use narratively and be deliberate about when, well, basically the article you looked at was the questions, be deliberate about those questions. When is your character mm -hmm. speaking? Why are they speaking? What are they saying? What are they not saying? How much are they speaking? Oh, I think it's interesting that you mentioned acting because as I was thinking about this interview and trying to get ready for it and how to approach it, one of the things I thought about was movies and, um, mm -hmm. you know, directors whose characters like sound like real people and particularly like Quentin Tarantino to me, it's especially a movie like Pulp Fiction. Um, and Judd Apatow and his comedies in you know the early and middle 2000s, those characters to me talked in ways and communicated in ways that made them feel real. Whereas a lot of characters talk like movie characters as opposed to feeling like really fleshed out. How do you and, mean that? Talk well, like I movie don't... character. Like you mean they feel presentational, but not fleshed out they death. feel like they are in a lot of movies they the character feels like they're there to advance the plot and they don't feel like a fully formed person and so mm -hmm. you know where you were talking about establishing backstory and you know one of the things i'm always trying to balance when i'm writing is okay there are things happening in this scene and it needs to go in a certain direction um but at the same time, this person existed before the, the story started and they will continue. Well, some of them will continue to exist after some of them won't because those are the kinds of stories that I write. Um, but, you know, they have they have a history that may not be entirely relevant, but parts of it, I feel like, need to leak into the story uh, to make them feel like a real person and not just a construct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot, pretty much everything in our history has to do with the the way we speak and the content of our dialogue, right? So if you have a certain background, you were raised in a certain place, you're going to sound a certain way. And I don't just mean an accent. I mean, the music of your language, the speed at which you speak, your vernacular, your frame of reference, um, your education will affect that. The people you are with will affect that. You know, I sound different right here talking to you in a professional environment than I will after a couple of beers with my buddies, <laughs> especially if I'm in a Southern bar because I was raised in Georgia and I will get all Southern on you. Well, so, and I saw that you went to Georgia State and I almost went there for a PhD before deciding to go to law school. So uh, oh, no kidding. yeah, so I can, I can identify with the Georgia roots since we're neighbors, although I'm transplanted from Texas. And like you were saying, which is where I am right this minute as we record this. How about that? And yeah. when I am in Texas with my family from Texas, that draw becomes much more prominent. So it's it very true. much is who you're around and speaking with about what part of you comes to the surface. Well, and while we're on sort of dialect and accent, let's and since you put yourself up on the microscope uh, on the slide, let's let's stay with that. I listen, I, I, because of my acting background, probably, and also because of writing, I listen to people's accents or just the way they talk, mm -hmm. the way they communicate, because it fascinates me. And I picked up right away that you were Southern, obviously. 
Um, when you said Birmingham, I was a little surprised because my best friend is from Birmingham and I know the Birmingham accent. And I'm like, I hear it a little, but there's something else in there too. And so when you said Texas, it all slipped together. That's an incredibly unique way of speaking. And if you bring something like that into your fiction, into your mm -hmm. storytelling, and you you let your your characters feel real like that, that's a great way. So you were talking about, you know, using the dialogue to further the story. Yes, but you have to do it in a way that feels organic like that, that's yeah. woven into the texture of it, as opposed to, you know, as you know, Bob dialogue where, you know, well, yes. y'all know I grew up in Texas, but then I was transplanted to Birmingham. So as soon as you say it, it doesn't sound natural anymore. You have to weave that in. Barbara, I'm sorry I interrupted. No, I, I think you're making such good points. We advance plot um, through secondary character dialogue. And I think that can be even harder to write than main character dialogue, because as you said, you have to, you can't just say, and I moved from Texas to Birmingham. You no, know, <laughs> if this is something that needs to be implied, you've got to find a way to put enough meat on the bones of your secondary characters so that their dialogue carries with it all the context that you need dialogue to carry. I think so many um, new writers that I've met think, oh, the dialogue's easy. That's uh. just <laughs> No, the dialogue is the hardest part because uh, your book will rise and fall on your dialogue. Well, and not only that, because dialogue has to do so much. It's not just there to express information. Yeah. It's not just there to spoon feed the reader what you think they need to know. It's also not just there to give the characters a reason to interact. It's working on a lot of different levels. Good dialogue should. There's an example I used in the article that you liked, JW, that was Jonathan Tropper. He's a, an, an author who's really good at this. So his, I did, I think, a five-line snippet of dialogue that, that I then broke down into exactly how much was happening just in the dialogue. And it's doing things like um, establishing the inciting event of the story, revealing some of the character relationships. Yes, it gives us information. It's uh, It starts, Dad's dead. And that's the inciting event of the story. So yes, we get that information. But we also learn about the relationship between the two characters who are speaking. We learn a little bit about their history. We learn a little bit about, and this is all through the dialogue. We learn a little bit about um, their relationship and what that might be like. We learn about how the character who is effectively the narrator feels about his mother, because his first question is mom. I always call it brushstrokes, you know, like with a lot of different elements of story. You don't want to just slap on big swaths of color. That's that sort of clumsy, heavy-handed, um, as you know, Bob, dialogue that we've been talking about. Like, bleh, here's everything you need to know. <laughs> you want to just... Um, you know, I've got a million different metaphors for this. Brush stroke it in like a pointillist painting or think of it as a tapestry as opposed to a patchwork quilt. You're not putting in big chunks of information. You're little by little as the story moves forward, bringing those threads into the dialogue. So it needs to not only say what you need it to say for the purposes of that scene, but it also needs to work under the surface doing all of those dynamic things that serve the story, the plot, the character, the stakes. And so making it do that and still sound natural is probably the greatest skill of learning to write dialogue. Yeah. I love, I love writing dialogue. It's my mm -hmm. favorite part of writing. Um, 
which does certainly doesn't mean it's the easiest. It mm-hmm. it takes the longest. Um, and my novels are dialogue intensive. Like if you have more than three paragraphs with without dialogue in one of my books, it's mm-hmm. an anomaly. That is very uncommon. That just because that's the way I write, and it's I don't even know if it's what I write to read, but it's certainly the way I have. <laughs> I'm working on my fifth one now, and they're all like this. Um, and I do want to go through these questions. And um, so in your article that we've referenced, um, create effective dialogue by asking the right questions. The questions that you're asking are, are these the adjective questions? I have to go back to, I taught English, but that was a different lifetime. Um, they're like, uh, who, what, when, where, why? I always think yeah. of them as the journalism questions. Okay. All right. So we're asking the journal- journalism slash adjective questions of, and I think the one that you start with in the article, um, why is the character speaking? It seems the most foundational to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so why do we need to know why our character is speaking before we start writing it? So there's two sides to that question. And one is, why are you as the author having them speak? And the other is, why are they as a character, a human being, speaking in that moment? And you as the author have to juggle all of that. And that's a lot of what we were just talking about as far as um, all the different things that dialogue is going to accomplish. So why are you as the author having them speak? That has to do with the stuff, the craft stuff, you know, like does this scene advance the, like the example I just gave the Jonathan Tropper, does it establish what we need to know about what's happening in the story? Does it reveal relationship and does it move the story forward? That's pretty much what those five lines that I analyzed did. By the way, if anybody is interested, it's in the, um, uh, this is where I leave you. It's the first, I think, five lines in that story. So that's what it's accomplished. That's what the author needs it to accomplish. What the characters are trying to do, why they are speaking might be different. So even in that exchange, Tropper talks about Wendy says, um, dad's dead. And the other character observes that she's always like this. She just vomits up stuff that is a big deal as if it's nothing. And it drives him crazy, even as it he kind of likes that about her. So we get this snippet of information about their relationship. We get some insight into the character. So we know why Wendy, that's the character, is speaking. She's calling to convey information. But also, through the narrator's eyes, we understand her other intention, which is whatever this persona, this facade of her is that he's beginning to share with us right from the beginning. And then he asks about his mom. And so he definitely wants to know that. But also, like I said, the author's purpose underneath that is to show a little bit of that relationship. So you have to balance what are you establishing here between the two of them? And then how is that serving the story and moving it forward? But also why a character speaks has a lot to do with who the character is in the moment of that scene. So does it reveal something about their relationship with this person? Um, Is the character speaking because they're nervous and they're trying to fill a silence because they're trying to impress someone Um, because they're desperate to reach out to connect with someone? And then, of course, you move on to, well, what is it that they say? And is that likely to get them what they want? And if not, why aren't they able to ask it directly? Are they speaking to to distract them, to distract someone from someone else. 
um, to alleviate discomfort in some way to um, because it's habit, because they're a loquacious character and they can't just shut up. Are they just being polite? So ask yourself from both sides, what is this accomplishing for my story and why? What is my character's motivation as well for saying whatever they're saying here? Well, and I liked what you said about what they're saying versus what they're not saying, because we've talked about being from the South mm -hmm. and being passive aggressive <laughs> is like a second <laughs> language here. And so there is so much that either isn't said or is being said indirectly in the words that you're choosing to use to say it by. And I, that may be true everywhere, but it feels like in, in the, the South particularly, um, that is just a way of communicating that isn't always verbal or is intentionally nonverbal or, or something like that. Yeah. Um, well, I love that you brought that up because it sort of touches yeah. on what we were talking about earlier. A character who is Southern or a character who is Northern or Midwestern or what have you, or, you know, from anywhere in the world, they will have those different um, social norms that you will also take into account because I've lived in New York. I was raised in the South. I live in Texas now. And each place has its own ethos. So you do have to, I do think everybody speaks in subtext, especially in fiction or storytelling. I think it's mm -hmm. incredibly valuable, but it can be done in a different way, depending on what kind of social environment they grew up in. But that, sorry, that didn't uh, sort of address the subtext issue itself. So there's a lot of different tools you can use to incorporate subtext. And it can be everything from oblique dialogue. Um, <laughs> the example of that I like to give is the other day, mm -hmm. my husband my husband and I were getting ready for bed and he goes, are you feeling okay? And I'd been having kind of some mental, you know, the kind of stuff you have as, an, as a creative where you're just struggling with whatever it is, your demons or creative impulse or how you feel about it. And that's what I thought he was picking up on. And I was pleased by that. So I, but I didn't want to talk about it. So my answer was, um, no, not right now. Or what did I say? I will be. Are you feeling okay? I will be. And he kind of looks at me confused and he goes, um, I've been feeling a little nauseous since dinner. And I wondered if you were too, if it was something we <laughs> ate. And so I said back, no, I'm fine. And then I read. So if you looked at that on a page, that says nothing. The dialogue of that is, are you feeling okay? I will be. I've been feeling nauseous. I wondered if you were too from dinner. No, I'm fine. But what was really going on there was the first stuff I already told you about, you know, the miscommunication. And then my understanding of what he said about why he asked, first of all, I was disappointed because mm -hmm. I thought he was picking up on my mental state. And I was like, oh, sweet. So yeah. that was coloring how I answered. Um, and then also we have this running thing about uh, hygiene in the kitchen where like he thinks sponges are gross and I don't. And, and we have this running like how long are leftovers good? Like every couple, right? This is our thing. What is really clean? We and can go so, back to how long leftovers are good. I'm pretty liberal about that. If that's right something on. we need to get. I'm get super liberal here. about it. I'm like, am I going to die from this? Probably not. But he always jokes that I'm trying to kill him. So there's a sensitive <laughs> point between us. So this is context, it's history, and you can show it on the page in the way that I replied to him. So not only was I a little bit upset that he didn't understand what was going on in my mind, so there's that disconnect in the subtext, but then there's also my little bit of offense that I was like, 
oh, I suppose you're nauseous because of something I fed you, right? (laughs) And so my answer was, no, I'm fine. And we had this weird oblique conversation that had absolutely nothing to do with the words. It was all going on under the surface. Dialogue is like, you know, the top 10% of the iceberg you can see is the words Mm -hmm. and everything else underneath that is what we're, what we mean what we say and don't mean, what we mean and don't say, what we think we hear that wasn't actually said, what the other person thinks they hear. And all of that is like, you know, the radio signals are just mass chaos underneath. And your job as the author is to use that to to not spell out, but let readers infer what's actually going on between the characters and use these as tools to share context, background, history, relationship, mm-hmm. move the story forward, character arc, all of that. That sounds super straightforward. And what I just said is a giant, tall, hard thing to learn. Oh, yeah. Well, and then there's also like internal dialogue. Uh, mm. My last couple of books have been first person point of view. And so that's been different than the first three that were. Uh, kind of a free and direct third person perspective where when I went into that person's point of view, it was very intentional. I put, or not point of view, but when I went into their internal thoughts, it was in italics. It was very intentional. And when it's first person, like everything is their thoughts. And so um, I'm having to balance of, and there's, there's no hiding anything from the reader when it's first person. Like if you do, it's cheating. Um, but what matters? What are they experiencing that needs to be communicated? Like what you're talking about right now with the story you just told of how much of that needs to be communicated versus letting the reader figure it out is such an interesting balance. And I know that when I go back for round two, I mean, I'm 50,000 words in. I think I've probably got like 23,000 more to go. Um, And when I go back, Barbara and I have talked about this. Both of us find that we have to go back and add in so much more emotional language and communication than we do in our first, than we have in our first drafts. And I know for me, particularly with this book, I didn't know my characters very well at all before I started writing it. And so now I certainly know them pretty well particularly my, my, my point of view character. And so when I go back and start over, I will know much more how she's going to respond to these situations that she's been thrown into and how she's going to feel about it than, than I did when I wrote it the first time. Mm-hmm. And so going back and adding that internal dialogue, and it's certainly going to filter into the conversation she's having too. But I don't, this isn't a question. I just think it's super interesting. Uh, and I don't even know how to frame it as a question. Well, so it's I'm always evolving. I like that you brought it up because one of the questions I asked in that in that post that you invited me on for was how much does your character speak? How much dialogue do you use? And I talk about no soliloquies, no screenplays, <laughs> which yeah. means um, soliloquies is when they just won't shut up. You know, they're like soapboxing or monologuing. And I always joke, it's like when you get cornered by someone in a group or at a party and they just don't, they're just like talking and talking and nobody, you're being talked at, at that point. And also you're taking away just white space on the page, which you know we need. And it starts to feel pontificating and we see the author's hand. But on the flip side, 
will be authors who don't use dialogue, I think, enough. So when you get a lot of narrative that explains everything, it doesn't really feel as vivid. It doesn't come to life on the page so much. Now, this this will depend on genre. It'll depend on the pace of the scene and what the scene is trying to accomplish to a degree, because you can balance how much of each you use. But if you're not giving us what you're talking about, JW, which is the some of the narrative and also the nonverbals, what's happening beneath the dialogue, you can't actually put all of that in dialogue because of subtext, right? We're not saying it. So we ha- you have to find a way to let readers see it. This is why I say no screenplays, because if it's, let's say you're not monologuing, but I see this a lot, is exchanges where there's almost no dialogue, tag, there is re- very little narrative, very little nonverbal or any painting of the scene. And that, it reads like a screenplay, and it works in screenplay because we have all these other senses because we're seeing what's happening between the characters and we're hearing their tone of voice and we're watching their body language. You have to give us that. As the Mm -hmm. author, you have to paint Mm -hmm. that picture in addition to giving us the dialogue. So the example I often use for that is a movie called uh, A Walk on the Moon. But honest to God, use any movie TV show. I Well, let's just leave the specific example out of it. Here's an exercise that will teach you this in a really vivid way visceral way. Watch something on television, on a movie, whatever it is. Watch a scene. First of all, turn. don't look at the screen. Just listen to it and see how much you understand of the scene. And then watch a scene where you are not listening to it. There is no volume and you're only watching it or the same scene. At night, my husband will wear headset because I like to read at night. He likes to watch TV. So he has this television up and I can't hear anything, but I can see it. And I can tell you what's going on in that scene based on what I'm seeing. The nonverbals I was just talking about, body language, gestures, expressions, you know, the way they hold themselves, the way they interact, eye contact, pauses. Mm -hmm. It's so clear. You have to give that to readers or we don't pick up on the subtext. So when you're writing dialogue, it's helpful to think of it as sort of working hand in hand with those nonverbals. You know what? I think that's a really strong exercise to help writers, all of us, become aware of of the subtext we do need to put in Mm. and the scene setting we do need to put in our dialogue. I was just, I've been watching West Wing again and they create their dialogue is so snappy. First of all, no mm-hmm. one I've ever met is smart enough to engage in kind of the dialogue that they do. Nobody would, would do that. Uh, but they also create such pacing in yes. the storyline because they're all moving. If you've seen it, you know, they're moving through the, the bowels of the, of the West Wing and they're all walking real fast and people are coming and going and it's all this snappy dialogue. And I think that's so interesting. If you turned around and listened to it, it'd be a far different experience. And then turning off the um, sound and just watching it. It's, um, it's unbelievable how much fuller and richer a scene will feel to you when you have no idea what they're saying, as opposed to when all you know is what they're saying. Yeah. You can pick, you can find almost any screenplay online now. So pick, pick a movie that yeah. you're going to watch and just read a scene you know, see what's actually there in the words and then go watch it 
and see how much is added by what we're seeing. And that, to your point, JW, I think has also to do with inner life, because in addition to those nonverbals that, um, for example, that's a great way that we know what the non-point of view character is experiencing, because we're seeing them through our narrator's eyes or through the point of view character's eyes. And those are the cues that tell us, you know, if someone is avoiding eye contact, that's telling us something about how we feel about what they're saying and the subtext of it. But so does inner life. And by that, I don't mean big swaths of inner monologue, which is as dull as big swaths of spoken monologue, but just we need a glimpse inside the characters as to what they are making of what they are hearing or what they are saying or what they're trying to say or the parts that they're not saying. One just really simple example of this that I see all the time in authors' manuscripts is they'll say, she paused or there was a silence. Yeah, probably there was, but that's an external defin- That's an external observation. It doesn't give readers any insight into what's happening in that silence that mm-hmm. is as important as the dialogue in telling us what the dynamic is between these two characters. So if you just say she paused, I mean, I, I always challenge authors Think of when you are pausing in a conversation or when you are silent for a moment, do you just go offline? Like, are you <laughs> blank? <laughs> no. Lots of stuff is happening. You know, you're thinking about what they said. You're thinking about well, how you might want to reply. You're mm-hmm. feeling whatever you feel based on what they say. You are weighing your words or you're not weighing your words or whatever it is that's happening giving us those cues, those clues, as well as what the characters are saying is every bit as much a part of dialogue as the words themselves. Yeah. And I can so tell you that um, in the manu- manuscript that I'm writing right now, one of the things that I have really been focusing on as I write is these nonverbal cues, body language and posture. And you know, as you're talking about, instead of writing, there was a pause or there was a silence. I will try to communicate, you know, if somebody didn't like something that was said, you know, they shift their weight to one hip and cross their arms. And you know that they have closed body language now and they feel a certain kind of way about whatever that was. And that, you know, it serves to show their reaction because if they're not a point of view character and they don't say anything, that's all you have to go on. But it also creates that pause where you don't have to say it you have included a movement or an action that creates a pause and like you understand that that's what's happened there before whatever happens next yeah those things are really valuable in creating realistic dialogue and i now that we're talking it out i realize probably one of the reasons dialogue feels difficult is that we're thinking of it as simply what is said and that's only part of the equation because yeah. we are not in a visual medium. We, I mean, as the author, you have to, you're the director, you're the cinematographer, you're the actor. You've got to let us see what we would see in a more visual medium or in real life that helps fill in those gaps that's underneath what the words are. Yeah, you just got to make sure that they're not standing there for four minutes being statues having a conversation because yes. they might also be washing the dishes or whatever else. Barbara jumped or, in or, on you there. Yeah, whatever is intentional. You know, we talked earlier about making sure everything is deliberate. I see also descriptions like she scratched her nose, (laughs) which is if you're using that to convey something, I don't know what, (laughs) fine. But generally it feels like filler. It feels like 
what trying to do what you just said, which is create that pause with a bit of stage direction. But if it is not used deliberately, what you said was used deliberately to convey something about what was said to the reader, but something neutral, like she scratched her nose, unless that is like a, you're using it as say, maybe a tell of a lie, right? Mm -hmm. But for the most part, lines like that just feel like blocking. (laughs) They're not, they're not accomplishing anything. And you have to be as deliberate about those types of things that accompany the dialogue as you do about the dialogue. I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to show, not tell. You know, you can tell the reader that, um, you know, she wasn't interested in what he was saying and didn't pay attention. Or you can say, um, a cockroach. She picked up her knitting again, or (laughs) yeah, a cockroach, you know, scurried along the baseboard and she followed it with its eye, with her eye and, you know, got whatever. So we know whatever he's saying, she didn't care about. She's looking at a cockroach or like you say, she picked up her knitting versus your character wasn't interested or made her mad or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Use that description. Use what they're doing to convey something about the nonverbals or the subtext of the dialogue. And it probably isn't something that somebody really very often does when they're talking. That's part of it. We're not taking a snapshot of people talking and recording it. Like you say, we're not. But I wish we would. Honest to God, you know, especially now with Zoom, I do a lot of Zoom interviews, Zoom conversations with people. And they're uh, for a a presentation I did on dialogue with Jane Friedman. I actually transcribed part of one of them. You have to do it when you don't know you're being recorded because then you won't do it. But if you do that and you look at not only your own dialogue, but the person that you're talking to, once you see it on the page, you realize where it loses momentum, where it doesn't have any narrative purpose, where it's not serving a scene. If you think of you know it in terms of story craft, it just makes it so visceral and clear. I'm a big fan of doing anything that lets you analyze something where you are objective, which is why I like that exercise, Barbara, um, the one that you said sounded like a good idea with the sound up and the sound down. Because it's a way to sort of viscerally internalize something that you don't generally have objectivity to see in your own writing, because none of us do, because we're so far in the forest, we need the drone view of someone saying, hey, look, there's the path. We can't see the path. But if you're analyzing other people's stories or conversations like that, or what have you, I analyze everything. I analyzed commercials and song lyrics, and I analyzed the slogan on a landscaping truck the other day for why it was effective. But if you get into the habit of doing that, honest, it was, it was the grass really is greener. And I thought, oh, that's brilliant, because not only is it immediately recognizable, but it taps into people's urge to be the best lawn in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So everything we write, every story you see, and everything is story, is designed to elicit some kind of reaction. And if you can start paying attention to your own reactions to stuff and then follow it back like a little detective into how was that accomplished? How did the author do that? So if you're reading or Barbara, in your case, you know, you're watching West Wing, stop and rewind and go back to that dialogue and then go exactly how step by step do they make me feel here that this character is angry or that this character is upset or whatever it is you're gleaning from that dialogue? How was it done? And that become, that to me is such a great way to learn craft because it's not you don't just learn it intellectually. You learn it in your gut and it becomes a tool in your toolbox that you don't even know you're reaching for when you're writing. It just comes out. Wow. 
Wow. Yeah, that's a we could talk about this for a couple hours, but that's a probably a perfect place to to put a pen in it and stop. Before we go, um, tell people where they can find you, follow you. I know that you've got a course coming out soon. Um, so tell us everything we need to know. Um, so the best place to find pretty much everything would be foxprinteditorial.com, my website. And that's got, I do a weekly blog that's full of craft tips and um, writing life insights and suggestions. I have a monthly feature called How Writers Revise, where I talk to successful authors about their editing and revision process and also the ups and downs of their journey so that people see that this is not a straight trajectory up. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a lot of freebies for authors, just tools that you can use like a self-editing checklist and how to find and vet an editor and a story template that'll help keep you on track. I've got online courses. And as you said, JW, one of them will be the dialogue course that I'll be launching in the next few weeks. And um, uh, oh, there's a whole page of resources on there for like things you can, books you can read, some of my favorite books, favorite podcasts. There's no affiliate links. So everything on there is just stuff I really love that um, all that hopefully is helpful to authors and all my socials are on there, but mainly that's where I live. Excellent. And yeah, say that again. So much. It's Fox. foxprinteditorial.com. Thank you. Thanks you guys. This has been wonderful. Like you, I could do this all day. I it's really good observations you made and great questions. Thanks. Well, Thanks. Thanks for being with us. Anytime. Take care.